We would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast is produced, the Wajak Noongar people, and pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. Courtney, we're back in the sweat box. We are. I, I kind of forget how small and hot it is in here, to be honest. We're in the yeah. um, the audio room. I think it's the uh, crea- creative space. The creative space, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But, it, I mean, it, it's got it's got a good little podcast area, but it is a yeah. small and hot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, it's, we're in the basement of a, yeah. of a physics building at yes, UWA. Yes, yes. Yeah. It's interesting that they did put the creative space in the physics lab area. Mm. That's that's an interesting choice. Yeah. Cuz there's another one over near Hackett Hall as oh, well. Oh yeah. Um but yeah, it doesn't sound the same as this one. No, no yeah. it doesn't. No. I prefer um, this one. But this is cool. Yeah. Our first first recording for 2023. Exciting. Yeah. yeah we we got there. It's, you know, great. it's it's mid mid February. Yeah. <laughs> first one for the year, but that's <laughs> yeah. all right. <laughs> but I think good things come to those who wait and that's I think right. we've got a really fascinating episode today. We do. Yeah. yeah. So we um we uh, invited uh, Bradley McDonald. Yep. Um Dr. Brad. Yeah. Um who uh, works as a pediatrician, mm. um, but is also doing his PhD. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've I've definitely seen Brad's name around a lot. So we're we're in a, uh, the the same cardiology group at the School of Population Global Health. So I've seen his name around for a very long time. Um, I've listened to one of his presentations before. There was like a recorded video, but I've never actually met him. And um, uh, before we started this episode. Uh, he said the same thing about me. He's like, I've seen your name everywhere, but I've never actually met you. So it was good to meet him. <laughs> yeah. 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 I had the fortune to meet Brad. You're going to hear a bit about his story, but I met him back in, I think, 2019. We were both, I think we were both uh, uh, reviewing a student's research proposal or something mm-hmm. like that. And it was on an area of medicine that he works in, which is, you know, pediatrics and whatnot. And so I got chatting to him then and then bumped into him three years later after there was quite a bit of water under the bridge. Yeah. And he shared some pretty interesting stories with me and he's going to, you know, share some of those with the listeners yeah. as well. Um, but, yeah, we don't want to spoil Mm-mm. this episode by giving too much away. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. yes, uh, have a listen to our, our chat with Brad and um, I think you're going to learn a lot. So we have actually started, but it's officially great to welcome you, Dr. Brad McDonald, yeah, to the thank, podcast. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I reckon we can, um, can we, this will be included as well, but we can probably just adjust it. That yeah, there we go. Oh, there we go. That's yeah, it's a bit of a loose thing. It's, yeah, yeah, no worries. It's all right. As long as it's sort of close. Close-ish. Close-ish. Yeah. close-ish it's fine. Yeah, yeah, it picks yeah, up yeah. Pr- pretty well. Yeah, yeah cool. Yeah. Yes. Um, no, yeah. Thanks right. for having me, guys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a good podcast. I've listened to a few episodes, and oh, that's good. Oh, yeah, that's yeah. So exciting. Yeah, interested in uh, in chucking on more 
Yeah. As time goes on. So <laughs> I also have a few suggestions. There's a few of my colleagues that are doing some interesting stuff around okay. in the like health research sort of sphere. Yeah. Um, other PhD students that I work with and stuff. Oh, good. Would, yeah, mm. it'd be good to have on and, and we chat like, to. Yeah, we like interesting and we like health. So mm. that ticks all the boxes. And it's yeah, also yeah. good for PhD students. So. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. I think lots of them are reluctant to um, talk about their research and the work that they're doing before oh, totally. they have like publications and stuff mm-hmm. out yeah. there. Um, okay. But I, I th- actually think it's good. I think it's good to talk yeah. about what you're doing and what's been worked on in the background. So, because otherwise people don't know. Yeah, mm. that's true. Yeah, and we often have times when people try to do the same stuff or don't link up with people that are doing like the same field Something of research similar, yeah. because oh, they're not aware yeah. of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's like these parallel like research projects or ideas that are occurring in the same okay. hospital system because yeah. of the same issues that they see. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? That's yeah, we've, we've sort of been documenting our PhD progress as we've gone along, even yeah. though we haven't had anything published and, and that sort of thing. So yeah. it doesn't really matter as long as you're not presenting results, specific yeah. results. I, I think we're, we're a little or. different though because we created our own platform to talk about our own research. Mm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah, no, yeah. it's, it's good. I think it's a bit cathartic yeah. talking about it because yeah. you Definitely. get to kind and of... I think like I started off my research stuff with like a, um, a telethon trust grant, which oh, yeah. is like a it's like this research thing where you get uh, 0.8 research, 0.2 clinical and it counts towards some of your clinical training. Yeah. Mm. Um, so I started off doing that. Um, and they're obviously really keen to hear about what you've been doing. Yeah. And sometimes it's like, oh, well, I haven't haven't got this out there yet. But yes, this is sort of what I've done and presented it here, and it's published as an abstract in all these places. Yeah. But you're yeah. you're a bit of a, a special PhD student because you're already a doctor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's the weird sort of other side of things. But uh, yeah, yeah. I think it's. Uh, yeah, like you don't realise how much you need this research side of your life mm-hmm. as uh, like in medicine and like things are changing so quickly. There's so many publications out there, like even just the ability to do like a rapid critical appraisal of literature is yeah. um, is more important, really important these days. Yeah, yeah, as yeah. time goes on. And then like, you know, I'm originally a science student <laughs> from UWA. <laughs> yeah, yeah, nice. So I've always had that like edge of interest. Um, I just, uh, just liked working with people, liked working with kids. So mm-hmm. that's... Hence the medical side of things. Yeah, that's so, cool. Yeah, yeah. 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 Really interesting. Um, so just for people listening who don't know you, or even those that do that maybe don't know enough about you, um, <laughs> you do practice clinically. Yep. And what, what area are you practicing in? Uh, so the classic junior medical officer curse is that I do 12-month contracts. Okay. <laughs> so I, know, I don't know what I'm doing with my life this time next year. Okay. Right? Um, but uh, my current contract is I'm a general paediatrics fellow at Perth Children's Hospital, okay. uh, which uh, sort of means I'm in a semi-senior position, uh, which is nice. Um, I'm in my last year of like specialty training with mm-hmm. the college, so finishing up general paediatrics. And then, um, yeah, who knows? Who knows okay. at the end of this contract? It's yeah. just, uh, it's all going to be sort of up in the air, but that's the current role. And is, so. is that your area of interest? I think I'll stay within the general paediatrics realm. Yeah. I have interest within that. Mm-hmm. Um, I really like neonates. I really like um, cardiology as well. Okay. Uh, hence the research sort yeah. of field. Um, we'll get onto that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But uh, uh, lots of those jobs are, you know, uh, will take a lot longer with training. Yeah. And I'm sort of interested to see what will happen at the end of training now next year without planning too much mm-hmm. uh, and see where I get to from there. Mm. So, yeah. Yeah. Before before we get into your research, I do have a question about working with kids. So you said um, neonates and uh, I've... Uh, I've watched a lot of TikToks in uh, the medical field that says neonates is an insanely difficult area to work in because there's just little known. Is that true? 
it, it is difficult. Uh, it's difficult for multiple reasons. Uh, obviously, you've got very tiny patients, fragile, immature sort of physiology, pathology that sneaks up on you. Like, you know, you've got a patient subset that doesn't tell you that they're unwell <laughs> or doesn't, you know, talk about it. I mean, that would uh, make it much easier, wouldn't it? Yeah, Just like yeah. tiny like, I'm and unwell. <laughs> yeah, the, the classic, uh, uh, you know, with sort of paediatrics and young people is they sort of tick along being fine and then they're just crashing a heap as opposed mm. to, mm-hmm. you know, some other subsets of the population that just sort of grumble along and slowly get worse so they can sort of surprise you. Um, but it's a like it's a very rewarding field to be in. Uh, you can make a lot of change in terms of like advancements. Like we've gone, like mm-hmm. you know, we have patients born at twenty three weeks gestation now that are mm. you know making its adulthood. And you know, yeah, I, yeah, I went totally. to medical school with someone that was like an extreme premature baby when she was born. Yeah, uh, and then you know, and now she's a doctor working in Victoria and stuff like yeah, that. So crazy, it's just it? amazing, and I like applying the um, the scientific knowledge to those areas. It's very technical as well, uh, which is why I've always enjoyed cardiology and neonates yeah. uh, in terms of the technical aspects of the field. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, so so it's it's good. But yeah, yeah. then you know it's high risk as well in terms of neonates mm. as well, and that can scare yeah. lots of people away. It's definitely yeah. not for anyone. Okay. And the, I don't know, yeah, the the work itself is uh, it's a bit of a burn. It's, mm. it's long mm-hmm. shifts. It's, yeah, it's yeah. lots of work. So Lots of emotions, I'd imagine. Yeah, um, yeah, I know, think so. Parents and that sort of thing as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that, that, that comes with paediatrics as well. Like, yep. you're, you know, you're treating a patient within the context of their family at mm-hmm. all times. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, so that branches out into sort of neonates as well. Yeah, okay. So, yeah, but I yeah, really like that field and the yeah. team here is fantastic as well, which probably okay. adds to it a little bit. So <laughs> we'll see We'll see where we get to. Mm. So what was your pathway, you know, from the start of university into medicine? Like, how did, what, did, what was your interest and how did you progress? Um, I sort of just took it one step at a time. Uh, I kept on hitting these, like, forks in the road, right, about, like, career <laughs> choices mm-hmm. um, and really didn't know what I was going to do. Um, I wasn't even sure about my science degree initially. I sort of just did it because I was interested in it. And then at the end of it, like I didn't really realise that that doesn't specifically lead anywhere <laughs> in terms of jobs. Bachelor of Science. Yeah. Who'd, right? have thought, who'd have thought? Yeah. Bachelor of Science, right? Yeah. Did, you, did uh, you choose a particular science area? I was doing uh, I was doing pharmacology yeah. and okay. I majored in um, anatomy and human bio yeah, as okay. well. Yeah. When, when did you do your degree? Uh, that would have been, what, 2006? Yeah, 2006 yeah, okay. to 2009. Cool. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so I did the classic, like, freaking out about the end of uni and mm-hmm. picked up an honours in yeah, science, nice, in pharmacology. Nice. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Uh, and that was clinical research. That was across the Royal Perth Hospital mm. with, um, uh, I think, uh, Professor Ladowski and his team in anaesthetics. So it was looking at, like, post-operative pain. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just really enjoyed, like, the patient interaction that I had, uh, that sort of one-on-one thing, and I felt like I had more to add with that. Uh, so then I started looking at clinical jobs and mm-hmm. I ended up um, getting a job as an echocardiographer, oh, cool. so scanning hearts. Yeah, yeah. And I started off my postgraduate diploma um, here uh, in Perth and then I was about halfway through that and because, you know, applications for these things sometimes take so long, I'd also applied for medicine back when I started, like, my diploma. Okay. <laughs> yeah, and then got halfway through this diploma and got offered medicine. Oh, wow. Mm. And I was just like, well, so I left the diploma yeah. and the um, echocardiography sort of field, which I still do a bit of um, with the cardiology guys and the yeah. various research that I'm doing. So I ended up leaving that and, uh, yeah, went and started med school. 
at UWA. Yeah. Mm. Okay. I, I spoke to a lot. Oh no, I did. Um, I did med school in Deakin in Victoria. Okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. Mm-hmm. The classic postgraduate medical school applications. You get preferences, right? Yeah. Yeah, and you try and hedge your bets as to which one is going to suit you best. And okay. yeah, the one that came up for me was Deakin in Victoria, mm. which uh, I thought was uh, like a bit of a curse. Like I looked where it was and I was just like, it's down <laughs> in like no. Geelong, right? Yeah. Right. yeah. Um, but we ended up living in Torquay on the surf coast oh, and, I'm a, oh. and I'm a surfer as well. So nice. yeah, okay. I was just like, you know, actually this really suits me. So <laughs> yeah. the first couple of years in medical school, there was... Uh, Lots of early mornings, lots of surfing. Okay. Yeah. So it was really nice. Yeah. <laughs> you said we. Were you with a partner at that point? Or? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I dragged my then girlfriend of four months okay. to, <laughs> to Victoria. <laughs> yes. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So I, yeah. I dragged her to um, Victoria. Not dragged her to Victoria, actually. She. Um, so I found out, well, I, I applied for medical school and I interviewed across there. Yeah. And when I interviewed, uh, she was a she completed a psychology degree. Also did a law degree as well. Massive overachiever. <laughs> um, so she did a um, psychology degree and was working for Department of Child Protection here mm-hmm. and was feeling a bit of the burn from that. It was mm-hmm. a very difficult job. Uh, felt a little bit you know, uh, like she might want to look at other things. She heard about my interview across there and started looking at other things. And um, she actually did a PhD across there and she got offered that before me. Okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so I, really I, she I made, dragged you along. Yeah, 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 yeah. Here's yeah. <laughs> the truth, right? So she actually dragged me along okay. because then she was like, well, I really want to go across and do this project with this supervisor mm. that I found there. So what if you like you interview but you don't get in? Like what happens then? Yeah. So maybe I would have yeah. So big questions she, for a four month relationship. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Yeah, four or five months. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. um and now we're married and have three kids. So <laughs> It'll definitely, work out for the best. yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, it didn't like it for lots of people. I think they were like, "Oh, what a like massive gamble to move interstate and move in with someone that you've only known for like a few months." And yeah. but it didn't feel that way at the time, right? Okay. Like you yeah. know, like I could have told you back then. There's you know, pretty sure I was going to marry her and yeah. have kids with her and all yeah. that sort of stuff. So <laughs> when yeah. you know, yeah, when you know, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and it was it was super nice, like living with her and mm-hmm. getting to know one another and exploring like a different part of the country as well. So. Mm. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. So you did your med um, qualification over there. Yep. And then what happened? Uh, Did some work. Uh, Worked for two years. Uh, Did a, like, I was down in Geelong Hospital um, Mm. and did my internship there. And then in my, like, my first rotation of my resident year, I did paediatrics. And the rotation before that, I I did um, adult psychiatry Mm -hmm. and I did adult gen med as well. Okay. And I definitely wasn't surgical. Like I, I knew I was never going to go down like a surgical pathway. And then I was doing the adult gen med and I just, it just wasn't me. I just felt, found it difficult to connect with patients and, um, you know, working around like social aspects and various other things that go on with people that are in general medicine. Yeah. Uh, and then I did pediatrics and it completely changed. Like yeah. I felt like I'd found like sort of my discipline and my people and oh, yeah. Cool. Um, and it was a, yeah, it was a good, good rotation, mm-hmm. fantastic team down there. And uh, yeah, really enjoyed it. And then I put in an application for paediatrics. The problem being is that we were down in Geelong and we'd already had our daughter. She was turning two that year. Um, and so we were like, oh, like I could apply in Victoria, but the Royal Children's Hospital, like rotations are really, like we were like, they're not that great for like family. Mm. You know, there's lots of rotations to other towns like Bendigo down to like um, Mornington Peninsula Way. There's rotations out to Ballarat. There's rotations down to Geelong. Mm -hmm. Um, I had friends there that had, 
you know, you do like say four rotations in a year, they'd only done one rotation at actual RCH itself okay. and all the other rotations had been at other hospitals. Yep. And we're just like, oh, I don't think we can move around like that mm. if we apply there, um, particularly with a two-year-old. So we looked at Perth um, and it was much more yeah. you know, flexible for junior medical officers starting out in paediatrics okay. training. Yeah, so, yeah. Okay. So I did a night shift in Obsgyne in Geelong. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then finished that and then flew and then <laughs> arrived <laughs> at Perth yeah. and did my orientation the next morning. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, because the contracts didn't line up. Of yeah. course they don't line no, up. They like it's did. interstate, right? Mm. So they were just like, oh, you've got to start – you know, yeah. and this morning, and I was just like, yeah, I, I've got a shift that night. It's just, yeah. It's quite a story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. so it was a bit of a burn. Yeah. So I'd sent, uh, I'd sent Annabelle and Kim over beforehand. Okay. Yeah, yeah, so they were here already. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, okay. And so practising led you to have an interest in research as well, by the sounds of it. Yeah, well, I, I did that little bit of clinical research prior. Yeah, um, the Honours Project. Right? Yeah, 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 Honours yeah. Project. And yeah. then I, uh, I sort of stuck with it for a little bit. I did a, a little like audit and a few research projects as a student, mm-hmm. nothing major. Um, and like, you know, research is a, a great way to like sort of complement your career in medicine. Like you see lots of issues, but often you don't have the tools to be able to solve those issues. Mm-hmm. Uh, all the so, evidence and all that sort of yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And so I just, uh, I found myself looking into it more and more as time went on. Mm-hmm. So seeing these issues and being like, why are we like doing this like this or why are we not approaching this in a proper way? Yeah. Uh, and that's how I sort of got into the research field of things. Okay. Yeah. And partly because, you know, it's one of those things – to like a bit of a control freak, right? <laughs> so I have to do it myself. Ah, uh, yes. So suddenly when you're there and you're doing like a project and you're waiting, like you're working with like someone that's, you know, like I, I use lots of R for like statistical-based programming. Yeah. Um, and you're working with someone else and you're waiting for them to get back to you. And I was just mm-hmm. like, oh, just do it myself. Just, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So just like I spent all this time just learning like coding language and yeah. getting into it and yeah. yeah, yeah. So, and it sort of just ran from there. So... Mm. Yeah. So what did you end up deciding your uh, PhD topic would be on? What was the, that main question? Uh, so I, uh, I was uh, working in the cardiology department and I was keen to do cardiology training. Um, and there's multiple ways to get into training, but there's very few funded positions. So sometimes if you get like I got the telethon sort of seven uh, research sort of uh, fellowship or trust uh, fellowship, and, uh, yeah, that was one way for me to get into cardiology. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I essentially spoke to the team and said, look, are there any projects that are there that I could do that I could potentially put forward for this fellowship? Mm-hmm. Uh, and they came up with this rheumatic heart disease project, uh, which I'm really thankful for because it's a fantastic discipline, not only within cardiology but across all of my general paediatric sort of knowledge and okay. hits lots of areas and issues that I'm worried about in medicine and for kids, particularly kids in WA. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, so it was a good project to pick up. Uh, And then uh, who I was working with across there, Deanne Yim, one of the cardiologists, was working with one of the researchers at the School of Population Health, Judith Katzellen-Bogan, and put me in contact with her. Mm-hmm. And she was just like, you know, well, you're doing this project, but we could also <laughs> flow on to do this project and then we could do this project and then like suddenly you're yeah. signing up for a PhD yeah. and you're like, yeah. yeah. She's very good at getting people to just 
do lots of things. So they yeah, might yeah. come in with one idea and then suddenly it's a 10-year project yeah. <laughs> that you're doing. Should yeah. use an ideas person and yeah. I think yep. probably a good summary. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and it, it's funny, so you have this one project and it's quite like compact. And then yeah. uh, so that, that project was looking at uh, left ventricular remodeling in mm-hmm. rheumatic heart disease, so how mm-hmm. the left side of the heart changes over time. So we have like this wealth of sort of data here in the cardiology department. It's all echo-based data. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of it just needed tidying and cleaning um, and okay. then some appropriate analysis. So we just looked yeah. at this modelling and you could see because, you know, rheumatic heart disease affects the heart valves. So as the valves become leaky, there's volume loading of the ventricle. It becomes bigger. And mm-hmm. so we looked at, you know, that and we essentially showed that in our sort of mild and moderate uh, like severity of rheumatic heart disease, it doesn't actually progress too much over time. So this left ventricle is sort of fairly stagnant, which means a lot for like follow-up because lots of these kids Uh are, you know, located pretty far away from tertiary centres. They require outreach clinics with the the cardiology (laughs) department to get their echocardiograms. So determining how often they need to be followed up Mm-hmm. is always a bit of a worry. Yeah. Um, so that that was a fantastic research project and I submitted it, uh, no, it's, it's going to be submitted in the next like couple of weeks, but it was presented in the States last year okay. and there's a few abstracts out there and things like that as usual with these research things. Yeah. But then, yeah, it's just it's expanded from there. So now we're doing this other project looking at various ways you index the measurements of the heart mm-hmm. in kids because you need to, you know, the heart grows over the time. So mm-hmm. how are you going to call a heart that you measure in an eight-year-old the same as a heart you measure in a 12-year-old? So you index mm-hmm. it often to body surface area. But then there's lots of people out there in research fields that have proposed different measurements and different ways of indexing. Right. So we basically just took as many as we could and just compared them all to see what difference it would make and okay. how it would change things. And it does mm-hmm. offer a bit of a different perspective, so it's mm-hmm. probably for consideration, right, like in the future. And then, uh, yeah, now we're looking at incident trends in acute <laughs> rheumatic fever, rheumatic heart disease in WA. <laughs> yeah, I yeah, am not surprised a, yeah, that that's where it ended up. <laughs> yeah, 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 which is good. Take a couple of steps back. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Sorry, I, I ran off, didn't I? Yeah. No, that's <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. no, no. Um, which doesn't surprise me considering the supervision and stuff you've had. I Absolutely. think that's how that project goes. Yeah. Um, so for people who may not be too familiar with rheumatic heart disease yep. and, and sort of the people that are most oh, affected yeah, that by that part of things. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Let's go back. What is it and, and who seems to present with it most frequently? Uh, yeah, so rheumatic heart disease, uh, like in terms of like pathology is a bit of a, a spectrum. Mm-hmm. So you have like a group A strep infection, which is often a throat infection or skin sores. Yep. Uh, and a group A strep infection can cause like this uh, immune response and you have um, this autoimmune sort of condition called acute rheumatic fever. During that time, you produce these like uh, complexes and they can deposit in various places in the body. Mm-hmm. And one of the places they can stick onto is the heart valves and they cause damage to the heart valves mm-hmm. over time. So okay. um, once that happens, the heart valves aren't great at repairing, so it can okay. be irreversible. Mm-hmm. Um, and also having your heart valves damaged predisposes you to other infections in the heart. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, you know, so you can have further episodes of acute rheumatic fever and then further damage to the heart valves. Mm-hmm. And then it can get to the stage over time with rheumatic heart disease if that heart valve has multiple insults and is further damaged, then suddenly you get volume loading of the left heart. Mm -hmm. And once you damage that muscle, 
there's not a lot you could do for patients, right? right? So like, the whole aim of like management of rheumatic heart disease from a cardiology perspective is stopping that further ba- damage to the heart muscle mm-hmm. over time. And, you know, most of the times they could do that with medication and avoiding further insults to the heart, but sometimes they have to do heart surgery and they have to fully replace the valve or repair mm-hmm. the valve to make sure that that doesn't continue to happen. So, That's right. yeah, but then, you know, the consequences of that are, are pretty, uh, you know, bad for people over their lifespan, like, you know, they have rheumatic heart disease for the rest of their life, uh, becomes a big issue for women when they're having babies and they have, you know, Mm -hmm. increased cardiac demand as well. Um, Mm -hmm. The highest uh, sort of incidence rate for uh, acute rheumatic fever is uh, actually kids between the age of 5 and 14, so really in the paediatric sphere. Um, And we don't see many new cases, and we don't know why, over the age of sort of 35 as well. So okay. it happens in younger age groups. Uh, there's also uh, probably some socioeconomic factors that underlie that as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's all about really this group A strep infection and, you know, the prevalence of that as well. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. And where, where does that infection tend to occur most? Like which populations? Uh, so we see it in um, Indigenous populations, largely rural and remote populations okay. in WA. So uh, if you look at the data, I think it was out of the Royal Children's Hospital where they look at all the, uh, I guess, epidemiology and how it's changed over, I think it was from the 1930s. It used to be something that affected sort of everyone fairly equally, right? Uh, But over time, there's become this sort of a socioeconomic disparity between who's affected by it. So, And there's some research out of um, TKI here with one of my supervisors, Asha Bowen, showing that, you know, the rates of skin infections in Indigenous children in like WA and Australia is like some of the highest in the world. So, Mm. you know, they, you know, someone's got group A strep and it just hangs around and you know, it sticks within families. And I think our bacterial load that we have in our body, our microbiome and our guts and our teeth is representative of our environments and our family and everything that's around for us. And mm-hmm. yeah, it just uh, it really sucks for these kids. And Yeah, yeah so it's environmental really factors, I'm assuming like water and like the availability of water and all that sort of stuff, does that play into that? Yeah, I think there is... Um, some uh, like some people looking into like swimming pools and the relationship between like uh, sort of skin infections, but uh, certainly related to like the availability of running water and yeah. uh, obviously related to remoteness as well and mm-hmm. you know uh, sort of living conditions and you know various other aspects. But lots of it is also related back to education and understanding yeah. these things and yeah, isn't, communicating isn't, um, those appropriately. Isn't so. strep a preventable? Uh, so, yeah, it's treatable. It's treatable. Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. yeah. Treatable with uh, sort of antibiotics. Yeah. Right. But, uh, you know, if you have, you know, like for us, three of us in a room, right, like yeah. in our padded cell. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, but like, you know, say we were sort of living in here and you treated one of us for a strep A infection, then there may be some carriage across the family. Mm-hmm. You know, there may be, you know, some way that that person who had that uh, pathogenic strain of strep A to get that back from someone else, if right. that makes sense. That makes it really hard. Yeah. So, yeah. and then, you know, you're trying to encourage kids to do things together, right? Like as kids, <laughs> yeah. right? Like, you know, they should be going out and doing things as kids and going to school where they're all in school together and various yeah. things like that. So, yeah, so that becomes really tough as well. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, so now, now going back to the beginning again, where you started. <laughs> <laughs> back even further. Yeah. So just start got, at the end. Huh? So you've got, yeah, you've got a, a couple of projects that done already. 
or published? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so data's been analysed, uh, sort of just with co-authors being finalised. Yeah. Yeah, okay. at times just playing that, that final part of the research game that yeah. I'm not really <laughs> too strong with of, like, actually getting your stuff out there. Have, and, you, have you submitted to journals? Uh, yeah. yeah, so we submitted to uh, Circulation, yeah. uh, um, CVI, like the Cardiovascular Imaging mm-hmm. Circulation subbranch, and they, it went to the reviewers, which was fantastic, but ultimately they came back and okay. rejected it. So okay. now well, it's time for the second second shot. Yeah, so. a different journal, I'm assuming. Yeah, you, well, did, you didn't. You didn't. No, no, no. Yeah, different journal. Yeah, yeah. yeah okay. no, no, they, they hate me now. So <laughs> <laughs> really. yeah, it yeah, does yeah. feel that way. Um, <laughs> how, how many journals have you submitted to for one paper? Uh, yeah, what's the the most? I think the most was probably five or six, yeah. and it took about yeah, okay. three years to get published. <laughs> and it ended up getting published in a WHO journal in okay. the Middle East because um, oh, yeah. it was it was around um, the use of a thing called CAT, mm. which is uh, like uh, a plant that's got sort of amphetamine-like mm. oh, qualities. Yeah, yeah okay. Oh, um, yeah. It's like a cultural kind of thing in the northeastern part of Africa and the Middle East. Mm. They chew it and they make tea out of it and that sort of stuff. And, yeah, we did, you know, there was a study actually done by Endry over here where they surveyed a whole load of people from the diaspora in from those communities Mm. in, I think, Perth and Melbourne. Yeah, okay. And I was just doing some secondary analysis and it's a very, very niche paper. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Tiny sort of population that, that... you know, you're targeting. Yeah. And so you bounced around all sorts of journals in Australia and America and mm-hmm. Europe and whatnot. And one of the co-authors in the paper is actually from that part of the world. And he said, oh, yeah, you should definitely go to this journal. Um, mm-hmm. I forget what the journal was even called. It's a bit obscure. <laughs> <laughs> nice. My, yeah. cool. my, um, my count's nine. Journals. Okay, nine journals. Yeah, nine yeah. journals. Yeah. Uh, it wasn't very novel research, that's why. Yeah. I was just okay. um, I was looking at 30-day readmissions in heart failure patients. Okay. So there's quite a lot of information about that already, yep. just not yep. in Australia. Yeah. Um, and we've ended up in an open access journal and we have to pay $2,500. No, for yeah, that's yeah. relatively cheap, actually. I've, yeah, I've yeah, paid yeah. a bit more than that for open access. But yeah. still, just for one where it's like not <laughs> super novel and it's kind of... Yeah, bounced around and like I don't really want to pay for it, but yeah, you know. common issues are like data age, so your data yeah, from yeah. like mm-hmm. three or five. Or but six when years you ago. when you're applying for nine journals, like that's a, like of course your data's going to age. Yeah, like yeah. The, the turnaround even for them having it mm-hmm. is yeah. like three months. Right? Yeah, and like this, this last off. one took nine months yeah. to get to get the back whole to process. You. Yeah, oh, and I will say the area that you guys kind of broadly work in mm. is similar and overlapping, and mm-hmm. there's lots of people doing that sort of work. So yeah. you have a lot of competition. You've got to be in it to win it. Like, you've got to be yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> recent the, stuff. Yeah, the, the advantage of that is that it's not hard to find reviewers for these yes. journals, but the disadvantage is obviously there's lots of competition, whereas for me it takes months for it, for them to even get reviewed. That's yeah, true. Yeah. Because yeah. it's quite niche, but yeah. ultimately there's probably a bit less competition. So if it does go to reviewers, you've got a better chance of yeah. probably getting the opportunity to do some revisions. Some of the, some of the big journals are just like I don't know how yeah. their, their editors like work, but sometimes it's like the next morning you come back and it's just like, like no. oh yeah, no, no thanks. <laughs> yeah, I'm just yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> read the title. And yeah, just yeah. <laughs> MJA does that quite a bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah we're we're lucky enough to have one that did go to reviewers mm. after hey. they sat, they took a month to kind of decide yeah, okay. at their editorial meeting or whatever. Mm. And it's now gone to reviews. It's a smoking paper. Mm. I'm looking mm-hmm. at surgery outcomes. Is and that smoking. for MJA? It's MJA. Oh, yeah, nice, it actually nice. went to tobacco control first. Yeah, yeah, and they didn't want it. 
Yeah, um, interesting. Yeah, for whatever reason. But sometimes, yeah. like going for like a like a journal that you know is a bit lower down, and I've done this before, where mm. it's gone to them and they've offered like fantastic feedback, like amazing. They've said no, but yeah. fantastic feedback, and you're like, you put the feedback in, you're like, I'm gonna. Gonna aim higher. Yeah, <laughs> I'm gonna, yeah, I'm gonna try this. I'm gonna, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. I had a few case reports and stuff that were rejected by like the Australian journals and mm. got into like you know British uh, archives of disease yeah. and childhood. Oh and yeah, like nice. Yeah, yeah. I'm just like Australia is very picky for some reason. Yeah, uh, yeah. 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 Particularly in cardiology as well. Uh, yeah. I've, I've struggled with Australian journals for, yeah, yeah. for cardiology. Um, they all get accepted in BMJ instead. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And there's often a little bit of uh, cabal, like of particular academics that sort of sit on the editorial boards of some mm. of these topics as well. Mm. And if you're in with them, perhaps you're, you know, I should, probably shouldn't say satellite. <laughs> yeah, yeah, remember you this get, is recorded. You get, you get a bit more of a, a look in yeah. or they might consider your work maybe a little more deeply. Yeah. But, yeah, there, there's a, there is a bit of politics there. Um, yeah. I, 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 am, yeah. I am friends with some people who have some big opinions about that, particularly yeah. about the cardiology uh, journals, but uh, I am not allowed to say any more than that. Yeah. Yeah. I have no opinion. I'm completely neutral. <laughs> no, but, like, it becomes a, an issue and you it don't realise when you're applying to, um, uh, like, within the topic field, like RHD, like rheumatic yeah. heart disease is not really an issue in the States. Mm-hmm. And so you're applying for a place like, you know, I did with like circulation and they're just like, they, mm-hmm. don't, they don't see a lot of it. So for their majority of their readership, it's probably less relevant. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sure, mm-hmm. it's interesting. Um, but, you know, they, they even have different guidelines around like endocarditis, prophylaxis, for rheumatic heart disease mm-hmm. based on Australian guidelines because... We do, really we do it. the work. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. And so, so are so, we more comparable to the developing world then? Is that? Uh, so it, it depends where you sort of go. Like rheumatic heart disease is the most common, like acquired heart disease worldwide. Yeah. Right? Like it's it's sort of everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just uh, there's few pockets of, I guess, developed nations where it's sort of gone from. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense. So, um, and we're like, you know, we're in a unique position here in Perth in that I feel like we've got lots of the, the tools and the capabilities and expertise to actually get rid of this. Like, there's yeah. an end RHD initiative looking at 2030, and mm-hmm. I think I think we have that here, mm-hmm. um, and I think we can really do that. Whereas I like, you know, some of the other countries that you see um, high prevalence of acute rheumatic fever, and rheumatic heart disease, mm-hmm. like, you know, I think I know there's like the East Timor, like hearts funds, like it's, it's, I think it's really hard to, because they don't even have some of the technology to get scans and do screening and, you know, okay. um, you know, uh, really tackle these things. Yeah. We, we suffer a bit with distance yeah. in Australia, like the, mm-hmm. the remoteness aspect. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it doesn't help at all, but yeah. So yeah. Then RHD is, it's one of the few heart diseases that we can actually completely eliminate. Well, you know, the earlier parts of it yeah. are like completely preventable, right? Yeah, mm. absolutely. So, yeah. I, yeah, and I think that's why maybe, you know, in more developed areas, that's why we're seeing less of it. Mm. Um, but, yeah, it is it is preventable. So, so it's, it takes time yeah. for that education and those environmental factors, I guess, get to get addressed, mm. doesn't it? Yeah. yeah, 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 exactly, exactly. And we're just thinking outside of, like, you know, the metro area and, yeah. you know, even the more regional areas, it's really just outside of that. So, yeah. Um, yeah, and, you know, I think it's difficult to explain. Like a, like I was trying to present this uh, paper in the States last year in Seattle at the um, American Society of Echocardiography Conference and just trying to explain, like, no, our land mass is, like, 
massive mm, and mm-hmm. like our you know distribution of population is like you know very <laughs> uneven and you know you don't realize how far you have to go out for these or like you know people coming in for these cardiology outreach clinics like traveling like eight ten hours in a car right, mm, for a mm-hmm. clinic appointment it's just yeah particularly in mm. the in the states as well i don't think they'd have much much understanding about like distances in australia did you ever like look at the equivalent times so, like, if you're in New York, it would you'd have to travel to wherever. Oh to yeah, same yeah. try distance. and make like a comparable yeah, distance. Yeah, no, yeah, no, yeah. I didn't do that. <laughs> but you seem to go through so much, like in other yeah. countries, right? Like, if you look at like the Europe equivalent, mm, like yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. When mm. I was uh, when I was younger, I did student exchange to like um Belgium. Yeah, and I remember you could get across the whole like country in three hours. Yeah, we used to have a we have a holiday house in Durian Bay up here, oh, nice. which is like three hours north. I'm yeah. just like you could do this whole country. And what we used to do was like a family trip, and there was like nothing. Yeah, yeah. used to jump on this road, and it was just like you know a barely formed yeah. road as well. <laughs> yeah, just sand dunes. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. And we're here. Three or four distinct languages across that three hours. Well, it is. It's actually yeah. three. Yeah, yeah, because there's like yeah. Flemish, then you go through the French part, and then yeah. on the um, uh, sort of eastern side is German. <laughs> yeah. yeah, 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 near Aachen and things yeah. like that. Yeah, so. Yeah, one village to the next. It's yeah. different. Yeah, 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 yeah. And they're like, you know, they'll tease like accents, right? So That's I, right. I learned yeah. in what traditionally was this area called Wallonia. That's and the they're, French speaking. Yeah, French speaking, yeah, yeah. Uh, Liège. Um, but their French speaking accent, they always used to tease them because they speak a little bit slow. Yeah. And like you know when you go to areas of France I'll be like oh this like area of Belgium like this so, but I found it fantastic because I was learning yeah. French for the first time I'm like oh they're all slow yeah. like, I, I can, I can <laughs> keep up with this yeah. That's, yeah. The, the, that's the equivalent of their Irish jokes is they tell Belgian jokes yeah, yeah. Thanks. Well, That's even kind of even in Belgium, this area, like I remember there would be jokes on like morning radio about the Wallonian accent yeah. and like these words they use and pronunciation and bits about the dialect. <laughs> Funny. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It took me about 12 months to get those, so. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you speak oh, French. Funny. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's super rusty. Okay. Yeah, yeah, it's super rusty. I, I like to call say it rusty in French. I have no idea, right? <laughs> <laughs> it's it's super like it's it's very barroom like okay. French. You yeah. know, like people are just like like I couldn't I couldn't work in a French speaking country without like really yeah. uh like scrubbing up on my French, particularly from a medical side of things. Okay. But mm. I could sit next to someone and talk about sport at the bar yeah. quite happily. Yeah, okay. Um ask them how their day was, things like that. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, which is not too bad. <laughs> Interesting. So yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Hi, we hope you're enjoying this episode. If you have a minute and enjoy the conversations we bring you, it'd be great if you could go to wherever you get your podcasts and give us a quick rating and review. Not only do we love to get your feedback, but it also helps other people to find us. Thank you. And now back to the show. Yeah, so um, what's the next phase of your PhD got in store then? Uh, So... uh yeah, I, I'm not not too sure. I'm gonna I'm gonna try and get some funding mm-hmm. um, because I'm at the end of like my specialty training. So like, mm-hmm. it, it's very hard, you know, with all of these coursework sort of things, having some competing coursework. So I've mm-hmm. had to like obviously put a pause on the PhD at times or have it as part time. Yeah. Um. So it would be nice to switch it over to full time with some funding, mm-hmm. and then do the medical stuff more part time for a little yeah. while, um, okay. just to get things moving a bit. Yep. Uh, but yeah, that that all relies on funding, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, we never know what's going to happen there. So yeah. Yeah. Um, that would be the like if I could plan it out and have it guaranteed, that would be yeah. the best idea. So yeah, okay. Um, and then uh, yeah, I think I think it's been seven years of pediatric specialty training, nine years of work straight. 
okay. um, of like, you know, shift work and things like that. So mm-hmm. I was thinking if nothing eventuates, I'll just uh, yeah. probably take some time and be a dad for a little while before yeah. taking the next step and, and do mm-hmm. a bit of planning around that. So Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. So that'd be good. So, so do you have a – your preference is to be able to do research and practice – like in the bigger picture, like I, I, th- I think so. Yeah, I think so. Okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. The mm. people that I um, like work with and uh, like collaborating with in the hospital have a bit of both. Mm-hmm. There's some really good like clinician researchers around, uh, yeah. and it's a very unique area. Mm. And uh, you you need to be guided by people like that. Like you know, I said Asha Bowen's one of my supervisors. Like she does it very well, but you need to be guided by people like that because it is a bit of a difficult balance, and you have like yeah. these competing interests, and mm-hmm. uh, you need to make sure that you're, you know, looking after everything, but also have a job at the end of the day and <laughs> can pay the mortgage and all of yeah. that sort of stuff as well. So yeah, okay. it's good. But yeah, so the next phase would be that, and then um, we're going to look at. Uh, so we have this wealth of data at PCH on all of these rheumatic uh, fever, rheumatic heart disease kids. And then uh, Judith has this like linked data analysis that's like quasi national mm-hmm. from like you know decades of data, yeah. uh, which is administrative data like linked okay. administrative data. And so we've um, we've gone through the data linkage branch to get those essentially tied up with each other. Okay. Um, so I, I really want to look at that data yeah. um, and I think we'll start looking at, you know, this uh, paediatric experience of acute rheumatic fever, rheumatic mm-hmm. heart disease, like mm-hmm. what you come in with, like, you know, whether you have mm-hmm. severe disease at the start, whether you have, you know, less than severe disease, whether you stay in hospital for a long time, whether you're treated with steroids, whether you're treated with diuretics, mm-hmm. and then looking at this longitudinal administrative data and seeing where these patients end up would be mm-hmm. really valuable. Um, yeah, it's a fairly young cohort. Yeah. But then again, most of the stuff in rheumatic heart disease happens when you're younger as well. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that'd be the, the next plan going forward, I yeah. think. What's so. the usual like time to event after you've developed rheumatic heart disease? So like mortality or hospitalization or things like that. What's the usual uh, time period? So it differs depending on your sort of situation. Yeah. Um, women who are having their kids for the first time mm-hmm. uh, tend to have bad outcomes yep. or worse mm-hmm. outcomes. Yeah, so that's yep. one time point. Mm-hmm. Um, there are some patients with severe repeated insults that have really poor outcomes in like uh, older teenage years, yep. young okay. adulthood as well. All right. So, so even though it's a younger cohort, you're probably still going to get mm. a fair amount of outcomes even if it's a couple of years follow-up. Yeah. Yep. yeah. And then like I remember echoing back in the day when I was um, starting my uh, sort of postgraduate diploma, um, and we would echo these uh, older people with rheumatic heart disease. But then you have this like overlay of like you've got rheumatic heart disease, but then you're developing coronary artery disease, mm. and you have hypertension mm-hmm. okay. and uh, other things. And it's like, oh, suddenly mm. this is like you know what was starting out in like in our cohort is rather, you mm-hmm. know, like it's normally you just have the single cardiac disease, like we even uh, exclude congenital heart disease from our research cohort, yeah. right? Yeah. Because but now that way you, you can't can look at it. because there's like but yeah, four but different then, diseases. But all. yeah, but like the disease doesn't care about that. It doesn't no. care if you have like another disease. So these patients become much more complex and need, yeah. you know, much more management and healthcare I think that is a, an interesting thing that's happened in research where like you would look at the single disease and, and figure out the pathways of whatever disease it was, that single thing. And now, mm. you know, because we're all living older and we're all, you know, fatter and lazier and all that kind of stuff, <laughs> like, we're, you know, we're Thanks all getting more diseases <laughs> earlier. So then looking at yeah. those interactions becomes way more important. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's one of the reasons why our primary care system's collapsing. It's because we've all gotten fatter and lazier. There's too much complexity <laughs> yeah. to manage. 
manage for a, like a single GP to manage. Absolutely. Oh yeah. And our system's not set up to bill for any of this sort of complex needs type yeah. stuff. So yeah. 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 And uh, like a, it's happened in like so many different areas. Like I remember the congenital heart disease. Mm-hmm. Like you know the cardiology departments at PCH has done a few projects on that. Um, and you're looking at these kids with congenital heart disease who never used to live to adulthood, mm. and then suddenly they're living into adulthood, and some of them getting to the stage where they do have coronary artery disease mm. or and other aspects, <laughs> yeah, of their heart that are deteriorating. Mm. Um, and traditionally, the uh, cardiologists trained in congenital heart disease were all the pediatric ones, so it's become its mm. own like subspecialty, like yeah, adult sure. congenital heart disease <laughs> has become its own subspecialty. Mm. Yeah, yeah, outside of like you know the usual stuff that adult cardiologists would look at and paediatric cardiologists in terms of age. So, mm. so it, like things like that and it's like, well, you know, 30 years ago, like the procedures that they were doing, they like didn't have great outcomes mm-hmm. and, you know, these patients never lived to this age and now we've got like this new cohort of patients, and mm. which is really fantastic to see. It's amazing to see it like, you know. But it's like yeah. a whole new area where we just don't know. Yeah. What's going to happen? Yeah. Yeah, 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 exactly. So, but fortunately, like they recognise that there's more people doing training in it. So there's a good uh, mm-hmm. service set up out of Charlie Gardeners up the road here mm-hmm. that have that as well. Like you know, adult congenital heart disease service and various things like that. So it is, uh, is getting better. But yeah, it's the, you know the curse of age that <laughs> yeah. we all have. But yeah. you know, like uh, I, I, yeah, some of these kids that I sort of see, right? Like they, they've got to have their hearts for life, right? And yeah. Look after them. So that's it. Yeah. So hopefully, if we could give them the best follow up and the best care early on, and look for solutions to that, then we could look after that sort of cohort. And then in the background, we have all of these, you know widespread public health policy changes, education mm-hmm. that could potentially change, you know, the, you know, rates and prevalence of group A strep. I think there's a hip hop video there on is. like on skin infections. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Hip hop video. Yeah, yeah. the TKI. There's a yeah. hip hop video. Developed up in the Kimberley, I think. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we, we had I can't remember her name but No, but I remember seeing it. Yeah, um, yeah a researcher on talking about it. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 yeah, yeah so just things like that. Just like Oh, um, redhead. <laughs> that's, that's all I can think of. You, you realise this yeah, is radio, yeah. right? <laughs> no, no. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. I, I can uh-huh. see, like, her emails and I can see, like, all of the, the images and all sorts of stuff. With it's definitely one that you arranged as well. Is it Hannah? Hannah, I think. Hannah, yeah. Hannah. I'm sorry, we'll, Hannah. We'll put it in the Yeah. Show yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah no, she was up there, um, yeah, sort of a couple of hours from Broome. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Doing stuff with the local community and yep. developing that video. Yeah, yeah. it's good because, like you know, like people just don't like. I, I like it's a, a crazy like pathology in terms mm. of how it happens. Like I could have this skin infection that could one day affect in like yeah. affect my heart function and yeah. things like that. Like it's you know, that's it. It's yeah. yeah, it's a really kind of weird concept, isn't it? That mm. something like that hurts your throat or hurts your skin. Yep. Then you know, can ruin your heart. Yeah, if it, yeah. if it doesn't get treated. My uh, my father-in-law grew up in like a Mount Magnet and he had acute rheumatic fever yeah. and didn't develop rheumatic heart disease from okay. it. So he was super lucky. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. um, but yeah, he remembers talking about it and being admitted to hospital. And he was, you know, I think he was like seven or eight at the time. Yeah, okay. It sounded so horrible. <laughs> like, and we see that all the time. Like it just like, you know, ongoing yeah. fevers and like joint pains and uh, some rashes, some unusual movements associated mm-hmm. with it. Like it just it, sounds a bit like malaria or something. You know mm. what? Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's just that. Yeah, it's uh, it doesn't sound like a very nice experience. No. And then everything that happens afterwards is a bit horrible. 
available as well. And I think, yeah, that's that's obviously a big driver of the research. And that's what helps with the clinician researcher sort of thing. Yeah. Like, you know, when I talk to like some of the other researchers I work with, it's great to have that inside of being like, well, actually I've like followed lots of kids through my cardiology rotations mm -hmm. through this journey and seen what they have to encounter. Mm. And, you know, it helps guide that research question a bit, which is yeah. good. So. so speaking of clinician researchers, we had a – uh, a, a couple of people on late last year that Courtney organised actually from Royal Perth that do research in sepsis. Yeah, I think you know Dr. Stephen McDonald. Yeah, yeah, not related. No relation. By the way, yeah, <laughs> not related. Yeah, um, and yeah, I think that's kind of how we got chatting about the podcast. Is you said you'd listen to that episode. Yeah, and that was based largely in in part because of your experience, right? Your yeah. personal experience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I um I don't know, like what do I call myself? I'm a sepsis survivor, like yeah. sepsis yeah. patient. Yeah, yeah survivor, things yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um I uh yeah, like this is another side hustle that I've sort of developed <laughs> since that experience. <laughs> yeah. And trying to make things better based on uh everything that I sort of went through. But uh do I give you the whole story or Yeah, so tell us when it happened and, and what exactly you went through. Uh, so it was uh, early 2020, pre yeah. pre pandemic. We didn't know anything about COVID yet. Mm -hmm. um, I essentially, well, if you work in pediatrics, right, you pick up viruses all the time. Like you know, I'd be sick like five or six times a year. So I thought I just had a virus, right? Super sweaty, uh, spiked some temperatures, uh, had like muscle aches all over the place, and then I um, I got up one night and I must have just dropped my blood pressure and just collapsed in the uh, in the kitchen. And uh, my wife was a little bit like, you know, what's happened, like, you know. And so I sort of chilled out for a little while at home, ended up going into hospital. I had, uh, like, I was put in to resus, which was a bit surprising, right? Like, you know, I was reluctant. Healthcare workers are always reluctant to go to hospital, right? It's like mm -hmm. the last thing. Like, I like I probably should have called an ambulance in retrospect, mm -hmm. but I was never going to call an ambulance, <laughs> right? Like, <laughs> don't want to overutilize that service. Yeah. Like, I would have to be like, you know, yeah. limb cut off to call it. So I called my mum. Yeah, because Kim was uh, Kim was at home with the kids, so yeah. I called my mum, got dropped off the hospital, yeah. uh, got chucked into recess, and then. Um, they had, uh, I think, I think they got thrown off because I had what looked like an anterior infarct on my ECG, so yeah. a heart attack. Mm -hmm. um, so they called cardiology, which is like super crazy, right? Like mm -hmm. I was aiming to be a cardiology yeah. trainee, mm -hmm. and then they came down and did an echo, which I used to do. So I was <laughs> like talking to the echo tech and watching my own heart, and there was like a little bit of a wall abnormality on my left ventricle as well. So they sent me, they bumped the cath lab, uh, the cath lab list, and put me on the front. So. And that was the last thing that I remember. I remember seeing the cath lab and seeing the dye go through my coronary arteries and seeing that it was okay mm -hmm. and talking to the cardiologist that was doing it, uh, which was good. And then they moved me to the ward and it all becomes really fuzzy and blank from there. Okay. Um, but basically I sort of sat on the ward for a little while. They thought it might have been a viral myocarditis and then the blood cultures that they took back in, um, the emergency department came back positive, all six bottles. <laughs> okay. So they called the ward. Um, it was actually a lucky pickup because uh, it was like the last uh, like couple of hours of the day. They weren't due to be checked again, and apparently one of the like you know microbiologists just like checked him out and flagged him at like, like ten, ten o'clock at night or something like that. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, uh, So they they called the ward. Um, they put up some antibiotics. Uh, that was like ten eleven at night, mm -hmm. and then by three a.m. they'd uh, filled me with fluid uh, and then called a met call. 
and the ICU guys were around and they were giving me like aliquots of adrenaline mm-hmm. on the way to ICU. Mm-hmm. So, and then uh, I don't remember any of this, by the way. So, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is all just, uh, you know, gathered from it's like, amazing. I guess, yeah, you, you know, collateral evidence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. My Your wife, friend my... that's treating you is like, by the way, <laughs> yeah, yeah. you had this much adrenaline. Well, <laughs> being a like, you know, a doctor in yeah. WA, like the medical community is quite small. So yeah. there was a bit of like, you know, like, oh, yeah, my wife works with you. Yeah, <laughs> and things yeah, like yeah, this. No, yeah. A lot of the doctors I know, that it, again, it's like you don't want to be treated um, you don't want to go to a hospital yeah. um, because your friends are treating you. Yeah, uh, yeah. Right. it's just yeah. Oh, yeah. scary. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 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 You so, also know what mistakes they make. Yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, so then I uh, I was uh, transferred across to ICU, uh, and then the next couple of days were uh, like you know for me didn't really make too much of a difference. I had no idea what was going on, but I think for my family we were like we're like yeah. hell. Yeah, pretty serious. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, so they ended up um, escalating my care uh, as much as they could. They had me on like quadruple like noradrenaline, like these inotropes to keep my essentially my peripheral vascular perfusion like was really leaky, and so it was hard to maintain my blood pressure amongst everything. They obviously. Mm-hmm you know, charted some antibiotics and had me on all of these life-saving drugs in ICU. Um, they decided to intubate me and put me under um, mm-hmm. because, you know, you need control of everything uh, mm-hmm. to help with things. And then uh, so they intubated me. Of course, I don't remember. Hmm. Apparently, I asked if I could help. Or, <laughs> or I, <laughs> Of course. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I even told them my, like, you know, we have these, like, surgical gloves that are sized. Yeah. I told them my glove size. Oh, nice. <laughs> Very my, important information. But, I, like, I was obviously delirious yeah. AF, right? Like, yeah. you know, I was just... You're yeah. not going to be able to put the tube down your own throat. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know, right? All right, we're intubating. Yeah. Chuck me my gloves. All right, let's go. <laughs> <laughs> let's do it. Um, so, so they intubated me and then... Um, uh, yeah, like I just uh, deteriorated and the next morning they called. So I went into the hospital on the Tuesday and that was the Thursday and they called my mum and dad, my wife in uh-huh. uh, and sat them down and had the death talk with them. All right. Yeah, That's and essentially said, look, we've uh, we've exhausted every option that we could, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and I think, uh, I think it was hard from them because, like, you know, like one of my cousins is like an anaesthetist there. Mm-hmm. She was like mm. poking like the ICU guys like, why aren't you starting ECMO? Why aren't you doing this? Mm. Right. And they were just like, no, we've done everything we could. Yeah, okay. uh, so we just have to see if he turns the corner. Right. And then I sat in that like holding pattern, like of like near death for like maybe a day or two mm-hmm. and then started to slowly get better. Yeah. Right. But it was a like massive insult to my body. Like I was two weeks, well, 10, 10 or 11 days intubated. Right. Yeah. So oh, wow. yeah. Um, I uh, had like renal failure and was on dialysis. I uh, was obviously on, uh, like, you know, triple antibiotic sort of therapy to help with it. Um, I had a staph aureus bacteremia or a sepsis and staph toxic shock as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, developed, like, this coagulopathy in my body. Um, I had liver function sort of failure or liver failure. My liver function was off. I uh, had, like, a septic cardiomyopathy where mm-hmm. my heart wasn't working too well. Um, and then they sort of extubated me and I was just like... Man, it was a, the craziest experience of my life, right? Like mm-hmm. I just, I thought when I'd woken up that we'd been on a trip somewhere mm-hmm. and that I'd collapsed on the trip and then been transferred back to Australia intubated, which none of this was true, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then there was this guy in my room and I couldn't explain why he was there. 
who was like telling me to do stuff. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. This wow. is, it gets crazy. It gets yeah, crazy. Right. Uh, telling me to do stuff for some reason. He would always sing like this, like like vocal, like throat song thing when I was like eating. Yeah. Um, and he thought I was like royalty or some crap, like delusions of grandeur that I was having. I thought the like I thought the nursing staff were like torturing me. Okay. So like you know I had these um, pressure sores on the bottom of my heels, mm-hmm. and I think they were just changing the dressings of it. But mm-hmm. I thought they were like purposely hurting me, like okay. slamming it against the bed, and so right. I became super distressed with them, super distressed with my you know family, with my wife, and uh, yeah, so that was pretty hard. And then you know they were really worried because like my like my perfusion was shot for such a long period of time. Like I think they were mm-hmm. a bit like you know is this going to be you know, the same for him for ages. Like I lingered, mm-hmm. yeah. we like affected his brain function and cognitive capacity. Mm-hmm. Uh, fortunately, they didn't, I hope. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I'm doing a PhD, <laughs> okay? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then, uh, yeah, and then I sort of just snapped out of that one day. Like it was miraculous, like snapping out of it after this like days and days of delirium yeah. and just to turn around and be like, like I like I kept on mixing up my kids, like how many kids I had. Mm-hmm. I had three kids, right? Yeah, yeah. But I kept on saying thirteen. Okay. The, like lovely, <laughs> lovely nursing staff always like your wife looks fantastic. Your <laughs> wife thinking, where are the other? Ten? Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, yeah, and then, um, well, yeah, like my my daughter was six weeks when this all happened. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. So mm-hmm. we would just had our third as well. So, mm-hmm. like, there's pictures of my wife there breastfeeding mm-hmm. the six-week-old in ICU with me intubated, mm. Mm. like, and everything, like, buzzing in the background. You know those, like, iPhone, like, live photos where you push on it and yeah. you just see me, like, you know, the breathing and the ventilation and, yeah. you know, all of the, the drugs running through me. So, mm. um, yeah, and there's photos of me when I wake up, like, holding this, like, you know, seven <laughs> or eight-week-old, right, like, yeah. in ICU. So. Wow. And did so obviously being a very new baby... What was your recollection of having that new, your new kid? Yeah, yeah, I remember. Like, I yeah. remember her being born and okay. everything like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the uh, like, sort of retrograde amnesia that I had only really goes to that period, like, okay. just before I was intubated. Yeah. Uh, and then, obviously, intubation was, you know, like, I think, you know, we're always fooled into thinking intubation is sleep, but it's mm-hmm. not sleep. Like, you know, particularly when you've got that amount of, like, adrenaline, or noradrenaline inotropes running through you. Mm-hmm. Um, you're in a state of like physiological stress. Like I thought I was like fighting like Greek gods and mm. like there was. So you were having quite a lot of like imagery while you were intubated. Mm. Yeah, 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 I remember. That's fascinating. I remember like this distinct one, and yeah, like this uh, was like this Greek Roman god guy mm-hmm. uh, that had organised like a way to like torture wow. me, and the torture was like I had to hold this like, hold this like chain. And mm-hmm. this chain was like connected to this massive, like spiky ball that was like hanging over the top of me. Yeah. So if I let go of the chain, then it, yeah. Yeah. But then there was like elements of like these weird, delirious sort of things that um, mm-hmm. like involved sort of like real life aspects of the yeah. environment. Like during that time when I was holding the chain, like, and I remember it distinctly. Like people say, like, oh, what a crazy dream. I'm like, no, no, it's, it's more like a memory. Like mm-hmm. it's more like solidified than that. Like I remember yeah. details about it that I shouldn't know. Uh, <laughs> and then, yeah, my wife was there on the side of me. And my mum was on, like, the other side. And then uh-huh. if I look back to the ICU photos when I was intubated, that's where they always sat on either side of me. Wow. Right. So there was some, some so, uh, perception yeah, happening. Yeah, like I had this maybe perception of them talking to me on, yeah. like, either side of me wow, during so these crazy things. And if you look back at other people that have been intubated for prolonged periods of time, yeah. like, they always have, like, these same, like, themes to their experiences. 
Yeah, that's yeah. so cool. It's crazy. No, but if you look at it, they're like they're all tortured. Yeah, uh, like mm-hmm. trapped. They're all, like, have these, like, horrific experiences when they're intubated Mm. and it just seems to be this common theme. Like, some people have stuff that's less wild than that. Yeah. But, Mm. yeah, I remember, like, there was another podcast, I think it was, like, an ICU nursing podcast and, like, someone was talking about being trapped and they thought they were in the Middle East somewhere and they were being tortured in this underground bunker. Mm. And really, they were just intubated in a hospital down the road. Right. That's so fascinating. Yeah. There's there's a book by Jodie Piku that she wrote uh, as COVID was happening. Yeah, yeah. And it was basically about that. Yeah. Um, but for a COVID patient. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's called Wish You Were Here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Interesting. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. I'm going to have there's, to look um, into this. There's one called uh, Devil in a Coma, uh, which is by the lead singer of The Screaming Trees, this old oh, yeah. 90s band, yeah. Mark, Mark Lanigan, who passed yeah. away. Yeah, recently. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, 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 recently. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So he had horrible experience with COVID. He got really sick. Okay. Um, and he wrote a short memoir about his experiences being yeah. under. But yeah, lots of people have these, like, you know, experiences of the devil or demons and various yeah. torture I aspects. Why? And, is it an yeah. oxygen. Like deprivation thing with the brain or this, is there yeah, some other... I'm not too sure. It, it yeah. almost sounds like a fight or flight yeah, response. Yeah, and there's almost like that fear response that you have. That, yeah. Um, and there's, it, like, there's themes of like being trapped and things. Yeah. 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 Anyway, oh. so I had that experience. Also, yeah. I had like experiences where I was like travelling through time, uh, like weird flashbacks to when I was uh, did medical student placement in Nepal and like I was mm-hmm. with the doctor mm-hmm. I worked with in Nepal and he was like... Um, working on all these patients that were intubated but had, like, these upside-down, like, buckets mm-hmm. on their head <laughs> instead of being intubated properly, and I was complaining to him about it. It's that just, sounds like a Doctor Who episode. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So <laughs> it's lots of lots of crazy stuff. So I experienced all of that, and I think the experiences I had when I was intubated flowed into the delirium that I had. Yeah. So seeing these people in the room that weren't there, um, you know, experiencing, uh, like, you know, people torturing me and hurting me and, mm-hmm. you know, you're like I was completely immobile as well. Like I couldn't mm. even lift my, like, hands to brush my teeth and things like that. Like, yeah. Uh, so, mm. yeah. Um, and then I just snapped out of it. Yeah, just one day, like, we were there <laughs> and I was, I was watching the, the Hangover 2. <laughs> Star was on the screen and yeah. my wife came there and I was just like, oh, how are the kids? And she was like, oh, yeah, here we go, another, like, delirious rant yeah. from my, <laughs> my yeah, husband. Yeah. Um, and How are all 13 of my kids? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was just like, no, but I actually, like, was like, yeah, all three of them and yeah, how right. they're going okay. and what's, what's happened and things like that. And I started recognising the photos on the wall that they put up there that were yeah. me and the kids and me when Matilda was born and stuff like that and sort of snapped out mm-hmm. of it. But then... Uh, like, that's, that's where things really just started, like, after that okay. experience. Like, I'd got through, but I was still on dialysis. Right. Uh, I was still on the inotropes. Uh-huh. I was still spiking daily temperatures. They didn't know what was causing it. Like, right. there was something driving this, some source of infection, but they didn't know where it was. Where so it was, yeah. that's, like, when the hunt began, right? Mm. Like, okay, let's try and find out what's, what's okay. going on. Uh, yeah. So that was about, like, that was about two weeks into my hospital experience mm-hmm. uh, of, like, I did 35 days in ICU, yeah. did, did three, three and a bit months in hospital in total. In total, yeah. Yeah. And then, uh, yeah, they started hunting for it. They got the plastics team involved because they did a scan of my spine because I'd complained of back pain. Uh, so they thought there might be a source of infection there. So they did an MRI and on it showed my left pec muscle had, like, this query myositis, like, inflammation going okay. on. Yeah. And so I got plastics to look at it multiple times. And then I started developing hip pain as well. 
and then eventually they did uh, this uh, radionucleotide scan, uh, which is attached to like white blood cells, and it just like lit up. So essentially, all in my groin, all the sides of my hips, my left pec, uh, left bicep it was just all this like white cell activity going on. Uh, so plastics took me to theatre four times. Uh, one was unplanned because I had a spontaneous bleed in the bed and started. Nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I had about tw- 20 blood transfusions over oh, the course God. of my stay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so it took me to theatre about four times. I had about six interventional procedures. Apparently, like my right hip, when they cut into it, they took out about like a, a cup full of like pus that was just there. Wow. Uh, they had to strip some of my hip muscles on the right side. So I lost Jeez. a bunch of muscle and they took my left pec as well. Yeah. So the old uh, swimsuit body is not what it used to be. <laughs> I only got yeah. one. Yeah, yeah. That's and then, uh, then I came out um, of these... Uh, you know, like operations, and mm-hmm. then attach these like vacuum drains yeah. there to like suck out the pus as it went on. So like yeah. all the wounds were open. Right. But I had uh, at one point I had seven drains, but I had nine in total with the changes. Right. So it was like you know like Neo in the Matrix, like when yeah. he wakes up and he's connected to everything. Like yeah. it was like that. Like, so that, they were there and I was just like, oh, we'll need to rotate you on the bed. And it was like this massive mission of like two nurses going around, making sure the drains didn't fall out, putting them in the right position, yeah. slowly rotating me across to one side and then yeah. putting me back on the other side. And mm. then the plastics team would come in and they, they were awesome. They were just like, they'd come in and just check all of the drains every day and see how much it's draining and try and take out ones that were no longer draining mm-hmm. and things like that. So... I did, I did get a little bit upset. They took me to theatre one day, right, and I thought I was going to get woken up the next day. Okay. But they kept me under, <laughs> <laughs> scans me. Yeah. Yeah, well, like, obviously, like, you know, I wasn't consenting for these. Well, I was consenting, but yeah. my wife signed all the forms and, like, it was what yeah. was best for me. Yeah. But they kept me under, MRI'd me, mm. and then, like, took me back to theatre after the MRI and cleared out all the rest of everything. Yeah. So I was right. intubated the whole time. And I thought mm. I'd just had, like, the one procedure in the afternoon. Yeah. It was, like, like, two, it was two days later. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was just like, hey, what's <laughs> in there? Yeah, so um, the drain slowly came out. Uh, and then, uh, you know, obviously lost the muscle, had some interventional procedures, so residual pockets of, like, pus and bacteria mm-hmm. that the um, radiologist went into and just, like, essentially stabbed needles into with, like, an ultrasound and took them out. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, it, yeah, it sort of got towards the end of that, and I, yeah, I remember the first time, like, I, like, didn't have a fever for a day. It was mm. like the best fucking experience <laughs> ever. It was so good. <laughs> like just not yeah. not being sweaty or having rigors or, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and just actually mm. feeling okay, not feeling hot or cold mm. or, yeah. yeah, like my heart was like racing or pounding through my chest mm. and, mm. yeah. And then, uh, yeah, I, I sort of lingered in ICU for a little while, partly because I was waiting for the bed on the ward, but... I um I went in at like ninety kilos and I came out at sixty eight. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. So I was just yeah. like super frail. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was like lots of like psychological aspects to it as well. Like yeah. you know the distressing elements of it. Like yeah. like lots of people develop PTSD and various other long term issues after mm-hmm. their um ICU experience. Yeah. And then I went to the ward for a couple of weeks. Got some more drains out. Slowly started to get up, but I just, uh, like, you know, I'd lost all these muscles. I still had drains in. Mm -hmm. I couldn't really walk. My blood pressure was still a bit, like, labile, so, like, I'd pass out at times if I stood up too quickly. And Mm -hmm. then I went to rehab for about five weeks, and then... uh, then COVID happened, man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was, yeah. It's mad, it's and then that, that 
scared scared us all a little bit because we were like, oh, I'm, I'm in no state to deal with like yeah, another you know, infection. Yeah, 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 another infection like this. Like you know, we don't know how my lungs are going to cope. Like hopefully they'll be okay. But going back into ICU, like I, like I was lucky. Like you know. Not a lot of people survive the insult that I had, but, yeah. like, you know, I was 32 at the time. Yeah. Uh, I was relatively fit. I didn't have any comorbidities. Yeah. So, mm. you know, I had everything going for me going in to sort of survive it. Uh, mm. So I always, like, sort of joke that I was actually – I was, like, gymming a lot post my <laughs> fellowship exams, yeah. which occurred in 2019. Yeah. And it was almost like I was getting ready. For, yeah, yeah, I was, like, you know, like getting ready for this, like, yeah. battle that I would have yeah. to have. Yeah, you, like, subconsciously uh, knew what was going to happen, so you yeah, were ready yeah, to yeah. go into it. Yeah. yeah. Mm. <laughs> so, um, so, yeah, like I said, it's uh, it's become a weird side hustle in that I, um, I now, like, uh, sit on the sepsis forum. I've, like, mm. contributed to um, n- national – like sort of mm-hmm. um, uh, inquisitions and committees on like sepsis and management and what we're doing and there's there's lots of issues with it like obviously yeah. mine wasn't picked up straight away yeah um, sepsis is hard to pick up in yeah. mm-hmm. you know when you have all of the signs let alone with kids and various other things so yeah uh, there needs to be a lot of work done in it mm-hmm. uh, and the other thing that needs a lot of work is like this post ICU experience mm-hmm. right and I think like there's people out there experiencing some of what I experienced with like long COVID yeah uh, there's certainly people that have sepsis that have like these post sepsis syndromes that are like still sick afterwards and yeah you know it was just like it really was and like I'll never be 100% but it was like years of like fatigue and mm-hmm. like lots of uh, depression anxiety and various other elements that made life really difficult and it's it's also really hard to communicate because on the outside you look fine yeah. right mm-hmm. so like and particularly if i've got clothes on like you can't see any of my scars or anything right. like that so can't see the missing pec muscle what no you can't yeah. see the missing pec muscle <laughs> yeah. no 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 exactly yeah. you got you got the bicep one there the bicep okay. one oh, yeah. yeah yeah which is there yeah, yeah. <laughs> so but there's lots of drain sites and things around so yeah yeah, yeah. And, but they're slightly fading as well which is nice and with, did you guys do any detective work to try and work out what was the initial cause of it? Yeah, no one knows. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I was part of like my own like case conferences with the infectious disease team <laughs> at the yeah. hospital. Where do you guys think I got it from? <laughs> no, talking about it. Yeah, because it's, it's yeah. also an interesting aspect. There's these yeah. studies looking at like healthcare workers. Like I think they looked at ICU nurses mm-hmm. and like uh, carriage of pathogenic strains of bacteria that had occurred in the ICU ward. And there was a percentage of the nurses that had carriage of this bacteria mm-hmm. that it was, you know, this pathological like bacteria in a patient mm-hmm. and they'd somehow picked it up yeah. and it had right. been like passed on. So I think healthcare workers are probably at a higher risk for that yeah. uh, as we probably know with like COVID and various other things. Yeah. So uh, maybe, you know, maybe related to what I do in my day job, maybe not. Yeah. You know, like staff, it's, staff is everywhere as yeah. well, right? Like staff is a fairly common bug. So. Yeah. Uh, I just don't know why I had that crazy response to it. Uh, they did mm-hmm. look into the type of pa- um, staff that I had and, mm-hmm. like, the uh, virulence factors associated with it, and there were some aspects of it that make it uh, particularly virulent. Okay. Uh, so it was a strain that they don't see too often. Yeah. Um, and But, you know, that's probably why it caused this, like, pyomyositis reaction and lived in my muscles for so long. Yeah. But, yeah. And in the database, when they run the, all, the, all these tests, are mm-hmm. they able to link what they took from you with anybody else? Uh, I'm not sure what their capability is to do that. Yeah, okay. yeah they certainly, like, from an infectious disease perspective, they do look at, um, 
you know, public health yeah. in the context of these things. Mm. Uh, quite often, they're normally quite good at it. Mm. Um, but detecting whether it's the same staff, because staff's so common, might be mm. difficult. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, they certainly do it with, like, strains of, like, you know, things like salmonella and giardia and yeah. stuff mm. when there's an outbreak from, like, a single restaurant or a single place where people are eating, yeah. you know, and lots of people present to hospital. It becomes a notifiable disease. But yeah. I'm not even sure if staff's like notifiable from that because it's so okay. common. So right? common. And there's so many different types, right? Yeah, like yeah, if we center. swabbed all of our skin now, you'd find a staph aureus species probably somewhere, right? Yeah. I know. It's <laughs> making you feel horrible, right? <laughs> hey? Skin infections, skin infections. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, wow. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, so so there's a bit of work to do in different stages of the treatment and the the uh, recovery and that yeah. sort of stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I uh, like I don't know I like advocating for it because I mm. I think uh, there's one element of my life that's very technical in terms of research that looks at. Uh, you know, like echocardiogram measures in rheumatic heart disease over time. But this is a little bit more touchy-feely, for lack of mm-hmm. like sort of better mm-hmm. words. Like it's almost a soft medicine. Yeah, qualitative, but also like the stuff that like shat me to tears when I was in ICU is not the stuff that's often on clinicians' radar, right? Mm-hmm. And like I talked about this, uh, I presented at uh, MedCon, one of the AMA conferences last year on this, but uh, and we're talking, my wife and I are actually talking at the um, College of Intensive Care Medicine talk mm-hmm. in Perth in May. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, really there's lots of aspects of your care that are often overlooked or lots of things that could be done. And they're actually like quite simple things like, mm-hmm. you know, it's just like helping with sleep and helping with like, you know, dietary intake and various elements that cause me pain or were really difficult to deal with that could probably easily be fixed. Mm-hmm. So, mm. yeah. So then again, it's, it's not like, you know, it, it sounds like a horrible experience, but like... I mean, it, you're I, here. Yeah, so, I know, I know, yeah, right? Like, so it's, like without ICU, yeah, you yeah. wouldn't And be I, here, I yeah. cannot understate the like existential high yeah. of like getting home after an experience like that and yeah. seeing your three kids and your dog run up to you. Mm. Yeah. Like, you know, like hobbling in, like it's just like, yeah. Yeah, yeah, knowing, was, yeah you, knowing yourself how many people don't make it through. Yeah, mm. yeah. yeah, 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 exactly. And just, uh, yeah. yeah, being able to see the other side of that, so... Yeah. Yeah, so it life's life's been pretty good. Yeah, yeah. From that I'd say you'll be in demand for years to come. Yep. you know that <laughs> unique blend of clinical experience. Yeah, and oh experience. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's, yeah, it's uh, like the advocate side <laughs> plus the understanding of like exactly why things happen the way they did. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And uh, yeah, it's it's nice to be able to contribute back. I, I think it actually. There's a selfish element to it. Like I think in order to heal from these experiences, sometimes it helps to – well, there's, there's evidence about this, like post-intensive mm-hmm. care syndrome, like people do better if they journal. Yeah. You know, yeah. like just something as simple as journaling, like but like understanding your feelings and thoughts and contributing back to it. That's it, um, yeah. It's I mean, more. I would go even broader in that I think the majority of people that are in some form of health – it usually yeah. still is selfish. Uh, yeah, I, I think because, you know, you get benefit out of helping people. Yeah. So yeah. that's, you know. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, this it's a, the nice level of selfish, right? Like I'm, <laughs> sure, I'm doing yeah. this like. <laughs> doing this it for benefits you, you to yeah. like help me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But there's there's got to be an element of it that we like yeah, in terms absolutely. of our work, right? Yeah. But, yeah, yeah, that's how I found this as well because I, I sort of wrote about it. I um I published a piece in um, Intensive Care Medicine, which is actually the highest impact factor journal that I've been nice, in. Nice, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> which was just like uh, 
excerpt from this uh, lots of writing that I've done since. Mm. Uh, but I just sort of felt like getting something out there and just talking about, like, the experience mm. that I had a little bit and mm-hmm. uh, this blend of, uh, I guess, you know, this being a clinician and then having this ICU experience and appreciating what the ICU staff did for me and how far they went and the infectious disease staff and yeah. allied health staff and orderlies and everything that helped it's a me out. multidisciplinary yeah, team. Yeah, like, yeah, exactly, exactly. So, but mm. this real appreciation for what they did and yeah how they how they worked with me and yeah, mm-hmm. yeah got through that was a you know it was a bit of a prick at times so that's <laughs> <laughs> oh, a bad spot right yeah. <laughs> i don't think anyone in that situation's gonna be a bit challenging yeah, yeah, yeah. have to um, yeah. but yeah going back to what you said before yeah. about the selfish aspect of being able to talk about it and that's you know c- kind of helping you deal with it I think that's you know talk therapy generally right that's yeah. like counseling and all that sort of stuff psychotherapy and and you know why people we, we've just had MDMA and whatnot approved for mm-hmm. use um, dealing with PTSD mm-hmm. in a counselling environment or a you know psychiatric environment, and I think that's what it's about, right? It's just giving people that safe safe space Being to be to able express. to talk about that experience that they've yeah. had or those experiences as a way of you know them not being ruled by them anymore because yeah. they can get them out in the open in a safe way. They don't mm-hmm. have to just keep having an echo chamber in their mind yep. that can't get released. Yes. Um, yeah, so I don't think it's selfish at all. And, and other people <laughs> are benefiting from hearing about it, I'd say, as well. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah. that's that's the ultimate aim is, like, you know, if uh, some feedback that I could give on this experience uh, or at least some, like, understanding mm. uh, can help someone else. Mm. Like, I've done ICU rotations before mm-hmm. and seen lots of intubated patients and I had no idea what they were going through in their minds. Mm-hmm like in the context of that and just having like a little bit of insight into that because they look like they're sleeping. Yeah. Right? You know? So they're fine, right? Yeah, yeah they're but, asleep, they're fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you know they're not sleeping. Yeah. Like no. you know deep down, but you just don't know exactly how that's perceived by yeah. them. Uh, in a dungeon getting tortured or something. Yeah, yeah. yeah but yeah. you don't understand that that perception is also something that's going to be laid in their brain forever mm-hmm. um, and something that they'll wake up with in two years' time thinking about in like sweats. And, yep. Yeah. Yeah, I certainly get that like element of like fear when I get like a virus now of mm-hmm. like, you know, and it's not like it's not a PTSD sort of thing. It's more just like a I'm not ready to go through that again, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, so like there's elements of that that sort yeah. of occur. So talking about that and even in forums like this, like it's it's helpful, right? Yeah, it well, helps. you're welcome. Definitely, yeah. <laughs> yeah, thanks. Thanks. <laughs> thanks to the, uh, the free uh, the therapy guys. Therapist. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> So you just uh, send me the bill. And, uh, <laughs> no, it's no charge. <laughs> no, no charge, that's right. We're just going to exploit you yeah. on, uh, <laughs> on the internet. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah. Oh, well, that seems like a pretty good note to wrap up, actually. So. Yeah. Um, yeah, unless there's something else you wanted to talk about. No, nah, um, no, it's, uh, yeah, it's, yeah. it's funny. Like, I, I think I used to be a bit of a me talker. Back uh-huh. in the day, but like being in medicine, like it's it's all about like the patient and what they're going through and listening to their yeah. story and things like that. So it's actually it's actually quite nice to talk yeah. about my own practice. <laughs> yeah, no, every excellent. now and then. Yeah, yeah, oh, well, thanks very much for coming in and joining us. No, yeah, no, any great. any time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm never going to listen to this. You realise? Yeah, no, that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> we'll let everyone you know unsubscribe. Know about it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what a terrible podcast. Do not like. <laughs>
all your colleagues are going to get a direct email from us about this, yeah. this episode, so it'll probably be played in your vicinity at some point. Oh, yeah. no. Definitely. No, I'm just joking. No, no, I'm actually getting a bit more used to that aspect of things as well, like people seeing what I've published and various aspects and talking about yeah. this experience. That's uh, like it's, it's always easy when you're a doctor in your own hospital system as a patient as well, right? Like it yeah. puts you on the front foot for being out there and being open about your experience and talking about it. So mm. sort of just stem from there. No, really good. Thanks yeah. for having me, well, guys. Thanks a lot, yeah. Yeah, really appreciate brilliant. it. <laughs> yeah. Excellent. And that was our fairly long conversation with Dr. Brad McDonald. <laughs> it was a fairly long conversation, wasn't it? <laughs> there, was, there was a lot so to cover. Topics. Yeah, yeah, he's been through a lot. Yeah. My goodness. Like, there's there's not many clinicians that I know of that start with research, then go into medicine, then continue research. Mm. Um, I think having that background of of the honours really helps once you've become, become a doctor because I think a lot mm. of doctors just don't even realise that research is a, a thing that they can do. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, just this whole, like, life story building up to that is really interesting. Mm. Yeah. I think one of the things that resonates with me with Brad is just how intellectually curious he is. Mm, so mm-hmm. he, And I'd say that he knows a lot about a lot. Yep. Purely, purely <laughs> because he, he bothers to look it up and he takes takes an interest, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, and I think that's the sort of person that you want, you know, being a doctor. Definitely. Treating people. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. And, I, you know, I think he said something um, where it, almost as if he, he got along better with kids and, you know, he found his specialty in um, in not podiatry. That's, P- that's pediatrics. Feet. Pediatrics. <laughs> <laughs> pediatric podiatry. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm not going to say that. Um, um, but, I mean, that certainly didn't come through. Like, he talked to us very well, yeah. I thought. No, look, <laughs> you know, I'm, we're adults. <laughs> I'm sure whatever discipline he went into, he'd be Absolutely. You know, a great doctor with you know, from a patient experience yeah. point of view. Yeah, definitely. Um, and he would have brought a lot to the, the rheumatic heart disease field as well. Um, yeah. You know, I did a, a quick Google um, of him and there's a number of news articles about the, the research that he's done. Yeah. Um, and, it, yeah, it's a very fascinating area of mm. research. Yeah, mm. you know, and he works very closely with one of our colleagues, mm-hmm. um, Judy Katzen Ellen bogan Yes. Who, who a lot of the people at the school will know. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Um, but, yeah, no, it was really great. Uh, conversation and you know obviously he's at a he's in a place where he can talk about his own lived experience mm-hmm. but I can't imagine that the first few times he spoke about that it would have been too easy no not at all now I, I do have a question uh, Craig yeah. uh, so I was a I've, I've, for this episode I've been a bad um, uh, podcast host and I, I didn't look at the talking points was that in okay. the talking points or was that a surprise because no. like I was shocked <laughs> I was like how did this come up yeah <laughs> So it was in the talking points. Yeah, cool. Okay. And so, because I sent that through, and I, you know, ba- you know, like we do with all guests. Yes. Obviously, yes. we're not going to talk about something they don't want to talk about. Absolutely. Um, yeah. But I actually uh, bumped into Brad at a school function late last year. Yeah. And we ha- we got chatting, um, and yeah, he he kind of told me cause, mm. uh, that he'd been through that because that had happened since I'd last seen him. Yeah. And. He, I asked him if he was happy talking about that sort of yeah, stuff. Yeah, cool. 
um, yeah, he said, obviously, from a clinical perspective, he wouldn't talk about it, but from a lived experience you know, perspective, he could. Yeah. So. Yeah, fascinating. Yeah. So interesting. The, the, the whole, like, ICU delirium dream space, that is just so fascinating. I, yeah. Oh, I feel like there just needs to be, like, we need to know so much more about that. That's right. Yeah. So interesting. Yeah. yeah I'd say you could write a a really dense book with people's experiences. Absolutely. You know, because it seems like the imagery is so vivid, like they yeah. can really describe in great detail. Has, has that been done? I'm sure it has in little Some bits and pieces. Case. Oh, I would so um, do that. that I, that's the I'm going to write a book and that, that's what the book's yeah. going to be on. That, fascinating. Absolutely so, fascinating. So I read a book. I'm sort of working my way through a book called Musicophilia, which mm. is sort of related, similar. It's about people having... Uh, auditory hallucinations yep. where they hear music and certain specific pieces of music, whether it's classical music or mm-hmm. hard rock music or something, mm-hmm. something's happened and they have these hallucinations um, throughout their life. Yep. And I think it's a psychiatrist that wrote the book sharing some of those stories. And I'd say that is kind of a sub-branch of some yeah. of these kind of memories and visions that people have whilst they're intubated. Yeah, absolutely. And, yeah. It, like, it's so interesting how you can bring things from what you're actually perceiving mm. and then have these delirium episodes from it. Yeah. Um, yeah, so, like, I guess something that uh, I've I've thought about a lot of dreams that I had and, you know, if you come up to me on the street and want to start talking about different dreams and what they mean and things like that, I love those conversations, yeah. um, which is probably why I'm interested in this, like, ICU Um kind of perspective Mm -hmm. um but i've always thought that like even just normal dreams they're from experiences during your day so the fact that like these icu delirium episodes can also bring in perspectives from during your day Mm. yeah really interesting i'm blown away (laughs) i'm blown away craig yeah Yeah, i I, I figured that this would this would be an episode that would appeal to a lot of people absolutely Um, yeah just you know, obviously, even if you're not interested in paediatrics and heart disease, mm. the fact that, you know, Brad has that uh, lived experience as well. Definitely. It just makes for a fascinating story, you yeah. know, uh, and plenty of learnings, as he was sort of saying at the end there, you know, mm. that the, there's work to be done in certain areas of the process of being treated and, re- you know, being rehabbed and that sort of stuff. So, yeah, yeah really fascinating stuff. And dare I say, you'll probably be hearing a little bit more from Brad I'm not, we we can't we can't say that yet. Yeah, we can't say that. <laughs> but anyway, we'll keep we'll keep that under wraps. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Yeah. All right, cool. Craig. So so you know we've we've come to the end of the podcast. Um, yep. Where can people contact us? All right. So there's some breaking news here. So the usual places. So um, at at health means what on Twitter. Um, Meaning of health on Facebook. Mm-hmm. Uh, Meaning of health at outlook dot com. If you fancy emailing us. Uh, 1990s style. Uh, and also, um, we also have Instagram set up now as well. Well, hey, so yeah. exciting. <laughs> There's yeah. no posts on there yet. No. I, we, we missed an opportunity. We should have taken a photo We should have taken today. a photo today. But, but that's all right. we will post something on Instagram. We will. Yeah. Eventually. Um, so people can access that as well. And, well, hey, message yeah. us through there. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, anyway, that was a great conversation. Yeah. Um, hope people listening enjoyed it, and we will definitely be back with a new episode soon. The Meaning of Health podcast is produced with the support of the Education Enhancement Unit and the School of Population and Global Health at the University of Western Australia. The podcast is produced by Craig Cumming and Courtney Webber. 
with editing, mixing and additional music by Craig Cumming.